Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Well, whether we're talking about COVID-19 or outrageous insurance premiums, healthcare is always on our minds in one capacity or another. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Bill Brandenburg, the owner of Wander Medicine and host of the medical podcast, Full Scope, to talk about some of these issues. From researching epidemiology and wilderness medicine to practicing compassionate and transparent care, Dr. Brandenburg not only prides himself on being educated, but truly cares about the community he serves. Outside of medicine, Bill is also developing a community marketplace set right here in Boise called Old Dugs, which seeks to bring local businesses and people together. Bill, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Justin, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Now, before we dive into the meat and potatoes here, I'm really curious, what actually drove you to medicine in the first place and made you decide to take this transparent angle that you have with your clinic and your clients? Well, I've always really liked science and nature and and things like physiology and biology. And I originally thought that I would go into research and do like lab work bench research or or even more ideally like field nature research or something like that. But then I did it and it was it was fairly isolating. You end up spending a lot of time by yourself performing experiments and I started to miss people and the human interaction. And so I found that I needed some sort of balance between dealing with science and and research, but also dealing with people. And medicine turned out to be a really good balance of those two things and, and sort of drew me into it as a result of that. I love that. And I, I think that focus on people, you know, you've you've touched on this before, that huge disconnect in the medical industry, obviously, that greatly affects the care, unfortunately, negatively, sometimes counterintuitively. Yeah, we uh we've definitely lost a lot of the human part of healthcare at least in the United States but a lot of other developed parts of the world. And for those that interact with healthcare, it probably feels very much like a business. And as a patient, you probably feel very much like a widget. And it leads you down a dark road because I think if you if you view medicine in this business sense and and don't really look at the human aspect of it, you miss important things and, and care becomes suboptimal. And I think that's kind of where we are and kind of the root of a lot of the problems. Absolutely. And I'm kind of curious. So you mentioned something specifically that it kind of reduces people down to widgets like cogs in the machine. And if anybody so much as reads the episode titles for your full scope podcast, they'd see really quickly that you aren't playing some political or financial game, but you're actually trying to educate people. So since you mentioned there's obviously that massive financial motive there in the healthcare industry, I'm curious, have you had to deal with any kind of pushback for this alternative approach? And if so, can you tell me more about that? There are so many people making a lot of money in healthcare right now. 
we're on course to spend one out of every three of our American dollars on healthcare in the United States. And that really isn't a value add to the society. That's just, I'm just really talking about sick care, taking care of sick people and keeping them from getting worse. I'm not even talking about keeping people well or helping them perform optimally. And so whenever you attack the status quo, uh, whatever that is, and you start to potentially threaten people's ability to keep making money, they're not going to like you or, or want to be your friend or, or support what you're doing. And so I absolutely have felt a lot of pushback. I'm definitely a small player in the game right now, so I don't think I've made big enough rumblings to garner too much attention from uh, some of the, the, the big-time players. But I think if I continue on this road, it'll probably start to get darker and uglier, for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. No, I mean, it's that, that's a messy industry. I, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes personally. <laughs> I mean, but at the end of the day, I, I felt like I, I just felt wrong to me. And, and I still have a very, I have a thriving hospital practice. I love to go to rural hospitals as well on top of the work I do at my clinic, Wonder Medicine. But it gets to the point when patients start bringing you in medical bills and they're 10000 $100,000, $200,000. And they say, doctor, you know, how could you do this to me? And, and as a doctor, you're like, I have nothing to do with this. The wages that I receive in no way reflect these obscene charges. And this is wrong. And, and so I just didn't want to spend an entire career being part of that system. I, I felt like I needed to do something else where I could potentially exert more positive forces on this market, which which I think has become very tainted and, and very sad in so many ways, in spite of a lot of really good people in it. And I think you see that a lot of times in different industries altogether. I mean, you look at teachers, for example, there's plenty of people, they want to make an impact, they want to help. But when there's that financial incentive, either harming the person doing the work or, you know, enriching businesses, a lot of times that pushes a lot of good people out or just ties their hands altogether. And I'm really curious. So you've talked about this in a number of different capacities, how counterintuitively our own medical industry can actually cause damage. Further touching on these failures, how did American medicine go so off the rails? Why are we paying these high premiums for this relatively poor care that's not even proactive? These are pretty tough questions, Justin, and I don't know that I could give a great answer for why everything is the way it is in healthcare right now. But I think things in in government and regulation tend to to build on each other, and insurance tends to build on itself. Uh, for instance, today there's a lot more regulations and there's a lot more insurance products than there there ever really have been. And I think a lot in a lot of ways we've really just set the wrong incentives in medicine. And those incentives have driven behaviors that have snowballed all themselves and created regulation and create, created products that build on each other. And, and for many people looking at it, it, it takes on this, this perception of being too big or too giant to take apart. And I think that's really sad. I think when you start to look at, at, um, at fundamental principles of something, it, it becomes easier. But it's become so complex. That, that a lot of people are scared and, and terrified to even start to try and break down the system. But I, I guess 
the simple way to answer your question is we have the wrong incentives in healthcare. We don't we don't value things like wellness. We don't value things like preventative medical medical care. What we value are high paying procedures, back end medical care, end of life extreme measures care. And for that reason, we've built a system that a lot of people refer to as sick care. We make money off of sick people. The more sick people there are, the more money we will make. And so until we realign those incentives and start to unravel some of the the snowballing effects of, of a system that continues to build on each other, we'll keep getting the outcomes that we're getting, which is a, a growingly unhealthy population and obscenely high medical costs with absolutely no transparency. And for any patient, they know very little accountability as well. Um, I, I think when you make any industry, the most important first thing you can do is make the incentives align with the goals. I think social media is a, a pretty good example. Like social media has set its its algorithms for engagement, and, and that engagement is at any cost. And so what happens is these machine learning things start to figure out, man, when you really play on people's hedonic instincts, when you start to 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 get into their dopamine circuits and, and their reward systems, you can really control them best. And so the, the the social media stuff isn't necessarily evil. It's just the incentives are not are not good for people and they've created this this monster that's social media. And I think that same thing has happened with medicine. We've We've created the wrong incentives, and, and, and those incentives have, have led to outcomes that we don't desire. I think that's interesting, and I think that's true in a lot of ways, that it just seems like such a huge, ominous, almost too big to fail-esque kind of industry. And I think that people see that, and they say, you know what? Whoa, that is way above my pay grade. I've got nothing to do with that. I know there's something wrong going on here. Either it's affecting me, family, friends, whatever. What do I possibly do? You know, I don't work in a hospital. I don't own a pharmaceutical company. How do I make an impact? And so you mentioned wellness in general. I mean, obviously there's McDonald's in every corner. People are less healthy. What can people do in their own lives to maybe make some small impact either on the healthcare system or just their own general wellness? What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, Please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. When you look at health from a, a truly a first principle stand, standpoint, so you ask yourself, what types of things build healthy people, build healthy communities, and build healthy environments? It's really simple stuff. An active lifestyle, moving, exercising, healthy whole foods, you know, having a food system that, uh, that provides good nourishment for our children and for ourselves, and then actually eating that good food. Engaging with other people within the society, having a purpose and, and living that purpose and letting that purpose drive you and, and, and provide guidance for your daily and, and, and weekly and monthly and yearly and, and basically whole lifetime. 
those things really drive health and they're all simple and they're all free. And the best thing about living a healthy lifestyle is that it absolutely is contagious. The people around you and the environment you're in dictate your health more than anything else around you. If you're surrounded by a lot of people who are overweight and obese, people who have diabetes, people who have depression, anxiety, you name the medical condition, your chances of having that condition go up. On the contrary, if you're around healthy people that are exercising, engaging, having interesting conversations, having a purpose, a reason to get up in the, in the morning and something they're living for, you're more likely to have all those good things. The pandemic has really pushed people into this state of unwellness, and that state of unwellness is in fact contagious. And so if you want to help the people around you, focus on those core parts of health, movement, healthy diet, uh, engagement with other people, having a purpose. I should include sleep with that because that's absolutely essential, getting adequate sleep. And you will give such a great gift to everyone around you because your behaviors are in fact contagious. I love that. And I, I think something important you touched on is that damn near all of that is free. You think about any kind of sick care, as you mentioned it, sick care is expensive. Going to the hospital is expensive. Heck, even just seeing a doctor is expensive, but taking care of yourself, going for a walk or a run, going hiking, eating healthier foods, that stuff doesn't cost you anything or at least costs very little. It doesn't. And I, I, I tell my patients, I'm like, if you ever have to choose between paying your monthly membership here in clinic or purchasing healthy food or, or, or belonging to a gym, please choose the food in the gym. <laughs> like I am, I am further up the line of needs as far as wellness and health go. And I think that's important. Uh, I think, I think communities need doctors and they need health care and they need places to go when they're sick. But most of health does not require lots of money. And it's, you know, and I'm big on things like, like supplements and, and nutrition and, and, and good medicines when you need them. But, but those are all secondary to those fundamentals of health. Absolutely. That, that unfortunately is the case far too often, right? It's instead of preventative care, it's, okay, well, what do we do once the problem's actually here rather than stopping it in the first place? I mean, here's, here's how bad it is. For a normal hospital system, primary care is a money loss. They lose money on their primary care clinics. But what primary care is, is it's a funnel. It's a way to bring patients in and then funnel them toward expensive procedures, surgeries, and other interventions. That is such a dark, evil setup. When you have a situation where primary care is losing money for systems because of the healthcare industry that we've built, I mean, it's just, it's just bad and it's going to continue to be bad until we, again, align those incentives and start telling people what really matters most, <laughs> which is the simple stuff, oftentimes nearly free stuff. And I shouldn't say nearly free. Healthy food is not necessarily cheap. But I always say to people, you can tell me that that good food may be expensive, but you know what's really expensive? Medical care. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. You know, and, and the reality is when you go shopping, especially when you have stores like Winco, it's relatively cheap to eat healthy. I mean, if you look, you know, item for item, you get the frozen junk food, you get the, 
you know, the, the microwaved meals, that stuff adds up super quick, but you can get frozen veggies. You can get fresh produce. It's not that pricey if you already have to buy food anyways. And the benefits you'll receive, like you will feel that much better. Your productivity will increase that much. The return on investment will be enormous. And so I cannot advocate for a healthy diet enough. Food truly is medicine. It is the first medicine and it it should be the last medicine. I couldn't agree more. And I'm curious, actually, so kind of touching on alternative treatments, alternative therapies and, you know, preventative care as a whole, your clinic specifically offers ketamine treatment for chronic pain and different mental conditions. And you've even covered psilocybin multiple times in your podcast. What can we learn from these traditionally banned substances and what role do these alternative therapies play in medicine? as we move deeper into the 21st century, considering what you said about the, you know, clinic, the hospital system. So there's this fascinating idea. And right now our society kind of attacks things like drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And I know you just did a, did a podcast on, um, on the history of, um, of the drug war, which was really interesting, but a lot of, anthropologists, people who study humans, um, have somewhat counter ideas. And that is that not only are drugs, sex, and rock and roll not necessarily that bad. And I, I say that in a in a kind of a, a funny sense. Maybe that's not the best way to say it. But the idea is that perhaps society was built on those things. Perhaps it was some of these ancient natural hallucinogenics which first allowed our what seemed to be fairly aggressive homo sapien ancestors to actually stop being at war with each other, get together and, and, and allow themselves to deal with each other. And so it's just crazy to me, the attack that's been made on a lot of classic hallucinogens, especially in light of the research that shows that taking things like LSD or psilocybin mushrooms or ayahuasca one time in your life, will make it statistically less likely for you to commit a violent crime. I mean, what part of that is a Schedule One substance? And so from, from my standpoint, that alone, looking at classic hallucinogens, should, should wake everybody up and say, holy cow, people are less violent for their entire life after using these substances one time? That's pretty remarkable. But what I've found in my extensive journey, uh, which has involved all of the different classic hallucinogens, as well as ketamine, which is a legal version, uh, which is kind of a legal way that I can get similar effects, is that these medicines are excellent ways to open up people's minds. They allow people to remove themselves from themselves and see some of their behaviors from almost a third party look. One of the things that people tend to do is get caught in these negative thought patterns. And these negative thought patterns can drive our behaviors and what we do. Constantly talking down to yourself, constantly thinking about that next donut or, or these unhealthy behaviors that, that keep engulfing you. Ketamine allows you to step back. And, and so do the classic hallucinogens. They allow you to step back and see some of those behaviors and rewire your brain in a way that allows you to improve your life, sometimes in lasting, very meaningful ways. And so I have found in my practice that ketamine has been 
excellent for a number of mental health conditions. It's also a great treatment for, for chronic pain. Just for even all comers, even people without severe mental health disorders, it's a reset. It's a way for them to get out of their funk, see things from a from a distant perspective, and in many ways ground themselves as in a way that uh, that other people um, could look at them and say, "You've got this problem, this problem, this problem." It allows them to to see that for themselves and then break those negative patterns. You know, I think that's interesting. Uh... To quote Joseph Goebbels, unfortunately, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes truth. And you mentioned my war on drugs episode. Unfortunately, that seems to be what we've seen over the last century or so. And I think a lot of times, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you've experienced this firsthand. I would think that people might look at themselves in the mirror and think, you know what, there's nothing wrong here. Why would I need a treatment like that in the first place? Oh, by the way, those treatments are harmful. Drugs are bad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it feels to me like you'd have a feedback loop almost where people don't think they need help at all. And then if they were to ever go get help, you know, they might think a conventional psychologist or something. They might think, oh, I got to go to the doctor not, oh, I should get a ketamine infusion. Yeah. I, in my experience, a lot of the people who need the help the most have the biggest walls built up around them. And these hallucinogens, ketamine, are, are ways to break down those walls and oftentimes very successfully. That's really fascinating. So kind of moving away from that, that's, and I, and I want to circle back to that at some point. So since the industrial revolution, we've had this record breaking environmental damage. I mean, it's here, it's around the globe. We've seen ocean acidification, acid rain, pollution, much, much more. What impact on public health does this pollution have? And what can people do, if anything, offset some of these effects in their own lives, in addition to the mental and the physical? The environmental situation and catastrophe that is going on in our planet right now is not only the biggest threat to human health that we have, it's also the biggest threat to society as we know it. The Earth has has gone through many different uh, epochs throughout its long history. And throughout times on Earth, the the system has been very energized. The weather and climate have been very turbulent. And those times would in no way support civilization as we know it. In the last 10,000 years, the climate of the planet has really stabilized and, and has actually um, been within two degrees Celsius throughout that entire time. And almost immediately when that happened, we saw multiple civilizations sprout up throughout the globe. Because of our destruction of the planet, we are destabilizing Earth, and we are leaving that stable period. And when we leave that stable period, um, the planet is going to become energized. So you you shouldn't just think about it as being warmer. It's going to be bigger droughts, bigger floods warmer temperatures, in some areas, much colder temperatures, bigger storms, bigger problems. And it, it, it's just a situation that's terrifying because it, it will probably lead to a very different world as far as civilization goes and, and how many humans the planet can sustain and, and many other things. This is without a doubt the biggest public health issue we face. It makes COVID look like an absolute joke. And for some reason, everybody seems to be, not everybody, but a lot of people, and especially those in power, seem to be ignoring it. Well, and it's, you know, I I said it once, I'll say it again. 
you repeat a lie enough, people start to you know believe it as truth. And I, I think that so often you mentioned people in power. If you have an issue that A can be politicized and B can be monetized, people are going to do it inevitably. And so you have issues, you know, like the climate and, and not even just climate change. I mean, just pollution in general, the, the different things we're wrecking around the world. We start to take those issues that frankly have no business being political and they become politicized for some kind of a short term gain. And so I think a lot of times people see that and they think, you know what, just like the medical industry, this is too big for me to tackle. I don't know what I could possibly do. So is there any way, I mean, you might recommend people can make some kind of an impact on a small scale just in their life? Obviously, you know, it adds up. Oh my gosh, there there are so many ways. But I just wanted to say that this this whole situation with the climate reminds me very much of the medical industry. You know, so many people in industry are making lots of money based on the manufacturing techniques and, and production uh, um methods that are used right now. And so people are going to be very apprehensive to change that because it will affect their bottom line. And the same way people are very um, resistant to change in the medical industry because it, again, will affect their bottom line. You know, if you if you really follow the money through some of these issues, um, it becomes very clear why certain things change and certain things don't. But back to your question about about what we can do today, there are so many things that that we can do today. One easy thing is just accepting the fact that human behavior will affect the planet that we live on. How we interact with the natural environment um, will have an effect on it. And we need to be very careful about how much of the earth, say, for instance, we inhabit and how much we give to other um, other animals and natural ecosystems. We need to be very careful about chemicals that we create, that we have very little understanding of the long-term effects. We need to be very careful about manufacturing things which tend to persist in our environment and build up and that we don't know how to get rid of, namely plastic. So just even accepting the the idea that humans are for all intents and purposes, destroying a gorgeous planet right now is one really good way you can help with the situation. As far as things that you can do, uh, there are so many things. Every time you go out to eat and you 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 know get a, a styrofoam or plastic uh, cup to drink out of or utensils and stuff like that, you're you're creating waste that's going to be here for hundreds and maybe thousands of years just by bringing a water bottle around and your own you your own utensils with you and your own stuff to carry things home from like the grocery store can be so important the amount of packaging waste that we have is just insane and and just by bringing your own supplies you can make a big difference on that front on top of that we can do things like create our own food and, and, and try to create circular economies, which means having economies where we create things and then use them and then can fully reuse or, or recycle that good. And I know that's maybe more um, on a, a business type role than an individual type role, but even just by supporting companies that are doing that, we can really improve things as individuals. I actually made like a whole blog and a whole podcast um, about all the different things that that people can do. There, there's just so many. Absolutely, and and you mentioned growing your own food. It's super cheap. I think people see, hey, you know what? I've got a studio apartment. I can't grow anything. But hey, you know what? 
Do you have windows? Do you have some space near those windows? You probably could grow something. Could you buy an indoor growing light and grow crops in your house? Absolutely. Not only does growing things give you food, it also brings tremendous joy. Um, it, it grounds people. It brings them back to the earth. Growing plants and, and cultivating other organisms is so good for health. It's incredible. I truly believe and, and I truly hope that someday humans can transcend from these exploiters of the natural environment to the guardians of it. I would like to see humans really take on this role of we've got this absolutely gorgeous planet. It is certainly an anomaly in our solar system and, 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 and maybe quite rare even throughout the galaxy and beyond. We need to cherish this thing. And we need to protect all the other living species on it because they are they are beautiful in and of themselves. And I think until we get beyond this, we are more powerful, we're more intelligent. Our job is to exploit and conquer. Uh, we're going to continue to just deteriorate and, and, and increasingly at our own expense, at the expense of our health, but pretty soon at the expense of our civilization. I agree. And I think a lot of times, and I'm curious what your thought is on this, a lot of times exposure is a major issue for people. They don't get exposed to certain parts of nature. They don't see the actual effects of what they're doing. It's like, for example, you take somebody who, let's say you take somebody who's racist. Well, there's a good chance they haven't really sat down with somebody that's a different skin color with them and actually had a conversation with them. They haven't actually tried to communicate with somebody that's on the other side of that fence. And so there's always that disconnect, like, you know, oh, well, you know, they're different, they're bad. And I think the same thing applies a lot of times to the environment or just for lifestyle changes as a whole. People don't see the effect that they have. They don't see the detriment on the other side. And so in a way, kind of unintentionally, they're ignoring it. Yeah, and you, you said this on one of your early episodes, but it turns out most of us have much more in common than we, than we think we do. And, and that can even go further. We've got much more in common with the other living species on our planet than we think we do. And once we're around them, once we see them, once we are able to fully experience their beauty, it's hard to not to just cherish them and realize that if these are lost, an absolute treasure is lost, and and not just because of the um, the scientific knowledge to gain from their genomes and the proteins inside them, and the the interesting ways that they uh, solve problems in nature, but just because of their intrinsic beauty, and because of the life force that that all living things have. Definitely, and I, I hate I hate to bring it around to COVID, but obviously that's a hot topic these days. And some, you've, you've mentioned a couple different times about the intrinsic beauty. And I think that there's really more or less two camps, especially in America. And take, for example, the COVID vaccine, and then take, for example, big oil companies. So you've got one side, you know, let, let's say you take people on the right. Typically, they're, you know, anti-vaccine, not a problem with oil or anything like that. And so it, it's kind of like that double standard where it's like, well, I don't trust this one big industry but I do trust this other one. And then you have the flip side on the, on the left. Well, you know, I trust the other industry, the medical industry, but I don't trust the oil companies. And so there's kind of this disconnect here. And obviously COVID has become extremely polarizing. I mean, it's basically changed how we perceive public health, the economy. I mean, as somebody who's both a doctor and has a unique take on the medical field as a whole, as well as a number of other industries, what are your thoughts on the pandemic and vaccination? Kind of looking at both sides of the argument, considering everything you've said. 
the whole situation is just so sad to me. I think that there is so much wrong on both sides of the argument. Um, I will say that from all the research we have so far, the vaccines truly, truly look like an extraordinary accomplishment and one that doesn't actually come about very often in farm in in the pharmaceutical industry. A lot of them make these sweeping claims that they have these game changer, blockbuster, extraordinary drugs. It doesn't happen very much, but the vaccine does does appear to be uh, one such area where they really did perform. And so I thought that was really cool. And the science behind it was really cool as well. But that being said, vaccines are not ever necessarily safe, nor are medications safe. They're simply indicated. The benefits of the vaccine simply outweigh the risks of COVID-19 infection for most all individuals. And so I, I'm seeing these two sides. I'm seeing one say any, anybody who says anything bad about the vaccine is uh, you know, a heretic and evil. They're, they're, they're not a, within side of science and they need to be silenced and shunned. And then, of course, you have the, the opposite thing where people are just attacking the vaccine just because it's literally called a vaccine and because of a lot of other reasons. And I think that, that both sides are preventing the real truth from from going on. In my experience, people who get the COVID vaccine are much, much less likely to get a severe COVID-19 infection. Have I seen breakthrough infection cases that have been serious? Yes, I, I absolutely have. So it's not a perfect treatment, but it, it's pretty darn good. Is it possible that there could be some long-term effects and has the vaccine stood the test of time? Absolutely, absolutely so. And, and it certainly hasn't stood the test of time. But the way that we are engaging in science in our discussions is really inhibiting the, um, is really inhibiting our understanding and, and our continued growth of knowledge. And it's really sad. And, and seeing these two camps play out has just been absolutely disgusting. I couldn't agree more with that. And I'm kind of curious. Talking about everything you've mentioned, whether it be getting out and exercising more or just admiring beauty, you know, in nature or eating healthier, whatever it may be, obviously COVID is an exceedingly complicated issue. You know, when it first came out, it, there was debate, okay, did it come from, you know, Chinese wet markets from eating bats? Did it come from a lab in Wuhan? There's a lot of things there kind of pulling back from COVID itself. As a whole with the medical industry, especially with epidemiology and virology, what are some preventative measures that we can be taking that we're not taking to stop the spread of viruses like COVID? So one thing that was said early on in the pandemic, and I know a lot of critics of, of um, kind of the NIH and, and everybody else involved with that, um, was a kind of a soundbite where people ask, you know, what can we do about the virus right now? What can we do today? And And I think the message that people got, whether or not this was the whole message or not, was nothing, um, shelter indoors, wait for a vaccine. And that is so sad. So, so sad. It turns out that our general fitness is really important when we look at survivability from any infection, including virus. If you're healthy, if you're exercising, if you're eating good food, your chances of doing well from a COVID-19 infection are much, much higher than someone who eats a sad standard American diet, mostly all processed foods, 
and lives a completely sedentary lifestyle. And so just by living healthy and exercising, you make your chances of surviving any infection, including COVID, much, much higher. And so please do those general health things. They really matter. And when we start to realize that we actually are still in this ecosystem of the world and infections do come about, sometimes infections spread worldwide and that fitness still matters. I think, I think it's just a really important lesson. Um, Throughout the pandemic, most people's health has just deteriorated further, and it's sad. And we've seen COVID continue to ravage through these people. And I know in my practice, especially in my hospital practice, people who eat pro- like processed junk food as their main diet are at tremendous risk. I have seen very few people on healthy diets that have gotten severe COVID-19 infection, even if they have some comorbid conditions. So there's definitely so much you can do. And, and really the, the best thing is just follow those fundamentals of health. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It seems like everything it keeps tying back to just that, that wellness that frankly is well within our control. And I'm curious, there's obviously there's the mental side of that. There's the physical side, your nutrition and exercise all plays into that. But you talked about quarantine, everybody just kind of sheltering inside, let's wait for the vaccine. For better or worse, that aside, what do you think the social effect is on people, especially children? Because you've got kids now that are strictly learning from home. They're doing it remotely. They don't see their friends every single day. They don't see their teachers every single day. Maybe they don't even leave their room. You've got people who aren't socializing as much. What do you think that, what, what, what? What kind of impact do you think that has on people as far as their overall health and wellness? I think it is a tremendous detriment. The biggest cost of the pandemic, without a doubt in my mind, will be the loss of education for our children. The second biggest cost of the pandemic will be the horrible health habits that we have developed and will carry with us long after we're talking about COVID in in every news article and every headline. Every single treatment and tool that we have used has secondary effects. And when you use a tool like quarantine, people have to understand that that is such a blunt instrument and that has so many secondary effects. And you better believe that the benefits of that treatment greatly outweigh the risks. Same thing with masks. Masks absolutely work. I was saying that long before um, uh, it seemed before the um, CDC and NIH appropriately um, uh, backed that idea. But masks do also have a lot of secondary effects. It turns out that smiling at other people really helps their their healthfulness and, and looking at other people helps all of us. And so all of us being in masks for years at a time is really not good for our mental health. There's there's certainly secondary effects. And so all those things need to be weighed. If you're going to quarantine an area, I think you need to understand that, that it, that's a very dangerous activity. And certainly in areas where you've got tremendous outbreak that's just, that's just going out of control, that's a good time to quarantine, like early in the pandemic when New York just started going crazy. Now, the problem was early in the pandemic, I'm working in these rural areas, COVID hasn't even hit them yet, and everyone's being told to quarantine. The hospital is absolutely dead, and we're not even seeing cases of COVID yet. And so it was just like used as this blanket sheet across the United States. Instead of picking and choosing areas where you have outbreaks, shutting them down, and then slowly reopening them when cases drop to a certain level. 
Same thing with masks. I mean, these things work. If you're if you have to be in crowded, congested areas when COVID levels are high, we absolutely need to or should think about wearing these things. But to say we need them every day, me seeing people walking in the park with masks on and driving in their cars, it's just it's too much. Like in, in certain situations, we need to take off our masks, smile at each other and see each other's faces because it's beneficial. Again, not to say that masks don't work, not to say they shouldn't be used, but all these instruments have secondary effects. And any policymaker needs to, one, be thinking about the, the, the benefits and the secondary effects. And not only that, they need to be studying these things in real time to know which things actually worked and which things didn't. Like early on in parks, they're like taking out every other swing. I mean, what a ridiculous idea. Like they're closing down outdoor beaches and and trailheads in California. Like what are we doing? People aren't having COVID outbreaks on trails. Simply don't sneeze directly in someone's face and you'll be fine. I just can't even believe some of the policies that have come out of the pandemic and how ridiculous they've been and how we haven't even studied them as they've been rolled out. It's just sad. Like it's, it, we're, the pandemic has exposed us as a broken society in a lot of ways. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that was time. But I, I'm, just, I'm just concerned we're not going to leave with the lessons that we need to. Well, unfortunately, as it seems to play out, I guess time will tell. But you mentioned this kind of mixed quarantining where you've got, you know, one area you'd want to quarantine because it's a heavy outbreak. Another area, there's literally no cases. There's no reason to quarantine. But both areas are being quarantined. And, you know, you talked about trails or beaches being shut down when obviously very few, if any, people are catching COVID on a trail. I know you rarely ever come in contact with somebody when you're hiking. You know what I mean? But I think that people hear that stuff and they don't, you know, they don't need to go to medical school or pre-med to understand that some of those things are kind of ridiculous. And so I think what happens is that you've got these decisions being made that really don't make any sense. And then there's that flip-flopping back and forth or, well, there's no cases in my county. Why are we quarantining? You know, you see the news, they talk about how, oh, wow, well, hospitals are full. Okay, well, the hospital up the street for me isn't full. What's going on? And so there becomes that lack of trust in officials. It's kind of like the boy who cried wolf, right? Where you do things wrong 10 times in a row. Well, that 11th time, you might be telling the truth, but eh, I'm not going to believe you because you lied to me the last 10 times. Yeah, and there's a ton of that. And I think a big part of that, too, is, is, is one of the problems with the lack of adoption of the vaccine. The pharmaceutical companies have touted so many medications with such marginal benefit as these ridiculously good drugs with the obscene price tags. And, and people have just kind of lost trust in a lot of that. And I, I think to say that that hasn't affected people's um, adoption of, of recommended things um, would be ridiculous. But I, I really and truly believe that the quarantine measures used in the United States were essentially almost a joke. You you can't really do a half kind of a half-ass quarantine. And certainly if you're going to quarantine, you really need to control the movement of people. So like, for instance, when the outbreak happened in New York, um, they really locked everything down. A good amount of the population just said, you know what, I'm going home. I'm, you know, my parents live in Missouri or my parents live in Texas. I'm going to just go home. And, and so we saw this sprawl of people just head out from New York all over the country, just seeding city after city with COVID. 
And so I think if you're going to use quarantine, you need to really go all in. You need to have people truly quarantine, stop the movement of people, and then not reopen areas until cases are essentially non-existent. You really need like a China level of authority to execute that correctly. And in fact, what we saw in China was just ridiculous suppression of the virus within a three to four month period. And I think looking back uh, worldwide, you know, if if all of us knew that this was going to be now a two, three year ordeal, I think all of us would have opted for, I'm truly going to stay in my house. I'm not going to leave for three months. And when this virus is finally dead, we'll come out. And if we can do that in three months, totally worth it. But we didn't do that. We did a, a half, sort of a half effort, and we sort of, quote, flattened the curve. But the virus was still out there, and it still continues to spread and mutate, and it's still a problem. So it's just kind of funny looking back. Like, if, if this was going to be a multi-year deal, which is clear it is now, how did we not shut down international air travel? Like, how did we not stop the movement of people? Like, that would have been the more efficacious thing than being in a perpetual cycle of COVID. So. I don't know. It's tough to look at some of these things. And I just hope society learns from this and, and does better next time, because there, there certainly will be more pandemics in the future and, and probably with much higher death rates and less than 1%. So I, uh, I hope we're learning. Well, hopefully we do. Uh, people tend to have a poor track record with that, but you know, time will tell. We'll see how that plays out. Well, moving away from the pandemic, you know, kind of the humdrum, I'm kind of curious, just before we close out, I want to hear more about Old Doug's in this project. I know it's completely unrelated to medicine. This is a strictly community-focused project, but how did this even come about, and what does your vision look like moving forward? So I have lived in in different areas. Uh, I'm from Missouri originally, but I lived in Denver for about 10 years before I got to Boise, Idaho about five years ago, and I've, I've done a fair amount of traveling and stuff. And I've seen a lot of plazas and I've seen a lot of food halls and food truck courts. And they're just awesome settings. They bring a lot of different people together. They're a little different than restaurants in that you don't necessarily go in and feel like you have to order stuff and buy stuff. They're just good places to meet up and hang out. And I felt like Boise really didn't have many of those types of venues. And I felt like it, the city had grown to a point where where it was time. Um, I actually live right down the street from the future site of Old Doug's, and I go on lots of bike rides. And I looked at this just bare, blighted piece of land with a with a great view, and I just thought to myself, what a perfect location for a community gathering place. And as someone who lives in the Boise Bench, um, I don't, I just really don't feel like we have that in our neighborhood, and I, I don't feel like the Boise State University students have that, and I, I just felt like there was a tremendous need. Also located on the property, there there was an insurance building, the VJ Brawler Insurance Building. And so I actually reached out to um, Mr. Brawler, Phil, and uh, this was like a couple years before I bought the property. And I said, hey, I really love this property. I've got some interesting ideas for it. But in the short term, I love this building. I think it's a great Spanish building with stucco walls and, and Spanish tile. And I'd love to convert it into a medical clinic. And Phil basically had, uh, you know, he was getting lots of offers on this land. This was a building site. People wanted to build big apartment complexes on it. It, it had great views and, and enough acreage and stuff like that to really make some margins on high-density housing. Uh, but Phil loved the idea of, of the building not being torn down, of, 
of it getting repurposed into a medical clinic. And, and he liked the other idea regarding the plaza. And so I, I bought the land with the idea that that goal number one is going to be to build a clinic in this this uh, historic little building that used to be a motel and then was an insurance building. And, and that is exactly what I did in, in 2019, sort of right, you know, it's in September of 2019, we bought the property, got to work on, on basically gutting and redoing the entire medical clinic. And then right at about uh, March, April, when it came time to open, of course, the pandemic hit. <laughs> so, so bad timing on that part, but we opened shortly after in May, uh, it was a rough start, but we've held on and, and we're really starting to grow now, which is exciting. Thank you so much to all our patients and early adopters. But the next part of the plan was to really develop this this plaza, this this social gathering place. And I know I, I keep saying how important social engagement is, how important it is to to get together with our neighbors and talk and inform ideas and think about things. And as a clinic and in, in a as a doctor in a clinic, I can certainly see patients and help them one by one. But by creating a, a better world that, that is more conducive to people getting together, I feel like I can help a lot more people and do a lot more good for the community than as, as one person helping people. Not to say that there's not a ton of merit in being one person helping people, but there's certainly system level things and development level things that can be really, really good for lots and lots of people. And so basically I, I got to work and, and um, this is my first real development project and it's been a learning curve but a lot of people have backed me and a lot of people are excited about this and I'm I'm really pumped to to get everything uh, sort of packaged up and and start breaking ground and then hopefully open up in fall of fall late fall you know early winter of 2022 I think that's just incredible and it really goes to show I mean this is a perfect example of walking the walk rather than just talking the talk because getting involved with your community and actually making a difference, it's like in your case, you're a doctor, obviously you treat people who may be sick, but it's taking the steps to actually help people get better before they ever get sick. That's huge. I mean, that right there, there's all the legitimacy you could ever need. I, I love that. I think that's a fantastic idea. And I think that Boise could really benefit from that. Oh, and you, you know what I want to tell you is that if you want our compost for the uh, for your garden project, you can have it. I heard you talking <laughs> about food equity, and I'm just I'm I'm appalled over and over again about how people always hide behind being sued. Um, as a doctor, I never worry about being sued at all. I simply try to take the best care of as I can of people, um, help them as much as I can. I live by the motto that would I want myself to be my own doctor? Am I providing the care that I would want my family to receive? And I, I really don't think about being sued as a doctor. The same thing goes for giving you compost. Like, are you kidding me? You're going to help kids grow crops at their school. And I'm going to tell you no, because I might get sued. That to me is so cowardish and, and really just part of the big problem of society. And yes, I'm calling all these grocery store chains absolute cowards. I cannot believe that they are hiding behind litigation and not helping people that are going hungry every night, not helping kids grow crops. It's just obscene and obscene. And these people should be called out for it. I think you were too polite to them. <laughs> you know what? I've, I've been down. Sorry that. about that. <laughs> hey, no, no need to apologize. Hey, I've been down that road more times than I care to admit. And I, 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 I won't call out the name of the grocery store specifically, but 
Um, there's one chain here in Boise, and each store threw away. I, I trying to memory serve. It's been a few years now, but each store threw away just in produce alone about three to four hundred pounds every single day, and that's just the produce. That's just fresh produce. That doesn't count anything that goes bad on the shelves, quote unquote. That doesn't count for any dairy or eggs or any other kind of product. It's just the produce, and it's it's mind boggling to me how much we throw away and how frankly easy it is to fix food insecurity at least here at home but we're not taking any steps to do it because like you said stores would rather be cowards and be afraid of litigation rather than make a genuine difference you know for that one case that pops up maybe it's it's just like society sucks like people are are more worried about being sued than than putting food on hungry people's tables like get <laughs> It's just not good. Like, and, 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 you know, like the laws we set up, like, oh, the, that food's expired, so we can't give it to people anymore. Those medicines are expired, so we can't use them. And it's it's just based on the fact that uh, th- they are so cautious that they set these expiration dates so far ahead of when these things actually go bad. And as a clinic, it's been really frustrating to me because I, I buy these medicines and then two months later, two months later, they're expired. I, I'm forced to throw them away by law. But it's like, man, wouldn't it be nice to give these away to people? <laughs> You know, a lot of people can't afford their meds. I hate to just throw these away. And it's it's just a sad state of affairs overall to me. Right. And and I'm not sure about the medical side of it. Obviously, I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor or practitioner or anything like that. But I know as far as food goes, the FDA, if you go on their website and you look up expiration dates, they literally say that there's no concrete evidence to support any kind of expiration date. Like there's no it's I brought up in my food insecurity episode. It's not like there was some study done to figure out that my 2% milk goes bad next week. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, you see like a bag of mixed nuts and you're like, this will last for 30 years guaranteed. And it expires in like three months. And you're like, oh, my gosh, it's just frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. Well, Bill, we're about out of time. I think this has been an awesome, awesome interview. And I'm really glad I had a chance to just kind of, you know, sit, talk, pick your brain, talk policy, not politics for a little while. Um, if somebody wanted to learn more about you, Wander Medicine, Full Scope, or Old Doug's, where would they go to do any of that? So every single one of those entities has a website. Wander Medicine is wandermedicine.com. We're located in Boise, Idaho, on the Boise bench, very close to Boise State University. If you want to learn about Old Doug's, you can go to olddoug's.com. If you want to check out uh, my podcast, Full Scope, uh, which which I think is is pretty um, pretty good at at just kind of focusing on the facts and and much less about trying to sell people things and and kind of go that route. You can check out the my website fullscope.org, or you can look at any of or you can check out any of the places you can find podcasts on like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or anything like that. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn uh, under Bill Brandenburg and and fairly active and uh, <laughs> disruptive on that fairly disruptive on all the platforms, but I'd say check out the website. Um, if you're interested, I, I love when people reach out to me. I'm always happy to answer questions. Um, I should say I love when people reach out to me that aren't trying to to sell me things for the clinic or something, but normal people that are just have inquiries, I, I love to talk to them. And um, thanks to all those who have engaged with any of those entities. Um, they're all kind of new growing businesses and things, and uh, I'm excited to to bring them all to maturity. Well, Bill, I, I, I agree with you wholly. I, I hope they all pan out and I absolutely will take your compost. <laughs> <laughs> it's yours. Seriously. Awesome. I was thinking about making some compost piles and 
And um, that's a lot of that's a lot of work. And honestly, the 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 1.4 acres that the plaza is going to be set on is really filling up. And to do a good compost program, you really need some space. And so I don't know if we have that. So I would love to see that compost go to a really noble cause um, with what you're doing. Definitely. Well, we'll take it. Well, again, Bill, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to hopefully having you back here in the near future. Yeah. Thank you, Justin. This is such an awesome thing. I hope you you keep going with this. I hope this thing grows. This is information that that people absolutely need to hear. And it's relevant to everybody across the United States, but really fun as somebody living in Idaho to have a, a local thing based out of our community and, and really exciting too. I couldn't agree more. Well, thanks again, Bill. Appreciate having you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye. Pew.